Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast. The podcast where we do things excellently. And here we are talking about uh, Book 9, Chapter 14. While sitting on the Cossack horse, which he allowed himself to ride, Nikolai notices he how he isn't afraid at all for the upcoming battle. Do you think this new horse is fitting for his new mindset? We go from admiring the rising sun to quickly riding into position at the first shots, but from waiting an hour in position to joining the Ulans into the battle. Do you think, well, do you like to read about these battles and do you like the way they are written or are you skimming through them to get to the other parts of the novel? Uh, I'm not skimming through anything. Um, but I do find that I'm just kind of, yeah, just reading it, you know, just, I'm not like really in it, in it. I'm just reading through it. Although the last few chapters have been good, but some of the early ones in this book, um, in book nine, I should say, um, have been a little bit like, just get, just get past it. So maybe I am skimming. Four lost souls in a bowl with this super helpful comment said, if, like me, you keep getting confused by all these terms for groups of soldiers, I made this handy list. A hus- uh, hussars, um, yeah, sorry, hussars are guys on horses. Dragoons are guys on horses. Ulans, guys on horses. And Rostov is a guy on a horse. Uh, Samovar is a metal container used to boil water. And it's probably also a guy on a horse. Um, thank you for Lost Souls in a Bowl. Uh, you're probably right. I think most things in this book are a guy on a horse. Uh, Wap 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 Away says, Finally some action. I really liked the scenery descriptions in this chapter. Regarding question two, I find the complaining in this subreddit funny. Sometimes I wonder what exactly inspired some people here to pick up a 1,400-page book set in Napoleonic Wars written shortly after said wars, with the actual word war in the title, if the reading war chapters is such a chore. I'm not the biggest war or military buff, and I much prefer the medieval stuff over this era, but I find these war chapters interesting. From the internal politics of the army to the descriptions of what is actually to be there, like this chapter with the descriptions of the distant gunfire and all. Very, very good point, Wap, wap away. You know, if we weren't expecting some war action, then why would we pick up a book, Cold War and Peace? And if we didn't want it to be slow, we shouldn't be reading a 1,400-page epic. I think the thing is, though, that they do feel slower-paced, the war chapters. They're just drier, you know, especially the ones where it's like, more among about like the politics of war rather than the actual battling itself whenever there's a war council or i don't know like the chapters with like the leaders and stuff they they the big leaders they just uh yeah they they, they can just be pretty dry so I, I see both sides but you are right like what were we expecting from an old old book which is so long and, uh, yeah, it is in any long book, you're going to have your more exciting and less exciting chapters. And I think on the whole, this book 
especially for its age, is pretty exciting. We get a lot of intrigue. We get a lot of romance, love triangles. We get some pretty intense battles, you know. So you see people fighting for their lives and scrapping and blowing up and all kinds of stuff. I don't begrudge it. Um, But yeah, well said, nonetheless. Let's read, what are we up to here? Chapter 15. Rostov, with his keen sportsman's eye, was one of the first to catch sight of these blue French dragoons pursuing our Uhlans. Nearer and nearer in disorderly crowds came the Uhlans and the French dragoons pursuing them. He could already see how these men, who looked so small at the foot of the hill, jostled and overtook one another waving their arms and their sabres in the air. Rostov gazed at what was happening before him as at a hunt. He felt instinctively that if the hussars struck at the French dragoons now, the latter could not withstand them. But if a charge was to be made, it must be done now, at that very moment, or it would be too late. He looked around. A captain standing beside him was gazing like himself, with eyes fixed on the cavalry below them. Andrew Sevastyanich, said Rostov. You know, we could crush them. A fine thing too, replied the captain, and really. Rostov, without waiting to hear him out, touched his horse, galloped to the front of the squadron, and before he had time to finish giving the word of command, the whole squadron, sharing his feeling, was following him. Rostov himself did not know how or why he did it. He acted as if he did he acted as he did when hunting, without reflecting or considering He saw the dragoons near that. They were galloping in disorder. He knew they could not withstand an attack. Knew there was only that moment and that if he let it slip it would not return. The bullets were whining and whistling so stimulatingly around him and his horse was so eager to go that he could not restrain himself. He touched his horse, gave the word of command and immediately hearing behind him the tramp of the horses of his deployed squadron rode at full trot downhill towards the dragoons. Hardly had they reached the bottom of the hill before their pace instinctively changed to a gallop which grew faster and faster as they drew nearer to our Uhlans and the French dragoons who galloped after them. The dragoons were now close at hand. On seeing the hussars, the foremost began to turn while those behind began to halt with the same feeling with which he had galloped across the path of a wolf. Rostov gave rein to his Donat's horse and galloped to intersect the path of the dragoons' disordered lines. One Ulan stopped, another who was on foot flung himself to the ground to avoid being knocked over, and a riderless horse fell in among the hussars. Nearly all the French dragoons were galloping back, Rostov picking out one of a what picking out one on a grey horse, dashed after him. On the way he came upon a bush, his gallant horse cleared it, and almost before he had righted himself in his saddle, he saw that he would immediately overtake the enemy he had selected. That Frenchman, by his uniform and officer, was going at a gallop, crouching on his grey horse and urging it on with his sabre. In another moment, Rostov's horse dashed in its breast. Dashed its sorry, Rostov's horse dashed its breast against the hindquarters of the officer's horse, almost knocking it over. And at the same instant, Rostov, without knowing why, raised his sabre and struck the Frenchman with it. The instant he had done this, all Rostov's animation vanished. The officer fell not so much from the blow, which had but slightly cut his arm above the elbow, as from the shock of his horse, to his horse, and from fright. 
Rostov reined in his horse, and his eyes sought his foe to see who, whom he had vanquished. The French dragoon officer was hopping with one foot on the ground, the other being caught in the stirrup. His eyes screwed up with fear as if every moment expected another blow, gazed up to Grostov with shrinking terror, his pale and mud-stained face, fair and young, with a dimple in the chin and light blue eyes, was not an enemy's face at all suited to a battlefield, but a most ordinary, home-like face. Before Rostov had decided what to do with him, the officer cried, I surrender. He hurriedly but vainly tried to get his foot out of the stirrup, and did not remove his frightened blue eyes from Rostov's face. Some hussars galloped up, disengaged his foot, and helped him into the saddle. On all sides the hussars were busy with the dragoons. One was wounded, but though his face was bleeding, he would not give up his horse. Another was perched up behind the hussar, with his arms round him. A third was being helped by an hussar to mount his horse. In front, the French infantry were firing as they ran. The hussars galloped hastily back with their prisoners. Rostov galloped back with the rest, aware of an unpleasant feeling of depression in his heart. Something vague and confused, which he could not at all account for, had come over him with the capture of that officer and the blow he had dealt him. Count Osterman Tolstoy met the returning hussars, sent for Rostov, thanked him, and said he would report his gallant deed to the Emperor and would recommend him for a St. George's Cross. When sent for by Count Osterman, Rostov, remembering that he had charged without orders, felt sure his commander was sending him for him to punish him for breach of discipline. Osterman's flattering words and promise of a reward should therefore have struck him all the more pleasantly, but he still felt that same vaguely disagreeable feeling of moral nausea. But what on earth is worrying me, he asked himself as he rode back from the general. Ilion, no, he's safe. Have I disgraced myself in any way? No, that's not it. Something else. Something else resembling remorse tormented him. Yes, oh yes, that French officer with the dimple, and I remember how my arm paused when I raised it. Rostov saw the prisoners being led away and galloped after them to have a look at their f- at his Frenchman with the dimple on his chin. He was sitting in his foreign uniform on a hussar pack horse and looked anxiously about him. The sword cut on his arm could scarcely be called a wound. He glanced at Rostov with a feigned smile and waved his hand in greeting. Rostov still had the same indefinite feeling as of shame. All that day and the next, his friends and comrades noticed that Rostov, without being dull or angry, was silent, thoughtful, and preoccupied. He drank reluctantly, tried to remain alone, and kept turning something over in his mind. Rostov was always thinking about that brilliant exploit of his, which, to his amazement, had gained him the St. George's Cross, and even given him a reputation for bravery, and there was something he could not at all understand. So... Others are even more afraid than I am, he thought. So that's all there is in what is called heroism. And did I do it for my country's sake? And how was he to blame with his dimple and blue eyes? And how frightened he was? He thought that I should kill him. Why should I kill him? My hand trembled, and they have given me a St. George's Cross. I can't make it all out. But while Nicholas was considering these questions, and still could reach no clear solution of what puzzled him so, the wheel of fortune in the service, as often happens, turned in his favour. After the affair at Ostrovna, he was brought into notice, received command of a hussar battalion, and when a brave officer was needed, he was chosen. Alright, there we go, Rostov, fanging it into battle, and uh, 
earning himself a bit of a uh, bit more respect a bit of a commendation well done Rostov and also all the while showing some humanity I loved that bit where the enemy looked like a normal person like a home uh, what did he say home like yeah all right thanks for listening I'll see you tomorrow